I believe, at this point. How's everybody doing today? Everybody, good, welcome thanks. to the uh, Deering Live. Thank you for joining us again on this delightful Thursday, earlier time, mainly because our special guest today is in the UK. Um, and so we're doing it earlier so that he can get a good night's sleep tonight. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about our guest today. Um, quite honestly, if you haven't heard of him before, everything about the way he approaches banjo pretty much is unorthodox. Uh, and by its very nature is, is what makes him such a unique and spectacular player. Um, I actually first met Dan, I think it was around 2015 uh, when I was here in the US at Deering. Uh, he came in, um, I, I wasn't sure who he was, but he came in and he performed uh, one of his pieces called Whiplash Reel. Um, so imagine my shock watching a British guy uh, basically playing a funk-laden Indian sitar-sounding groovy piece in a clawhammer banjo style, quite honestly, on, a, on an instrument that many would argue is not really a clawhammer banjo at all. It's preserved for bluegrass on a Sierra. So my mind was pretty much blown, not only by the, the quality of the playing, but the, but the fact that, you know, here I was again being shown um, how the boundaries of the banjo uh, could be completely blown out of the water. And, and I'm, of course, I'm talking about the man himself, Mr. Dan Walsh. Dan, how are you, man? Well, I'm very, I'm very well, especially after that introduction. Thank you very much. That was, very uh, thank you very much. <laughs> I should say, hello, mate. How you doing? That's how I should do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <should> and <laughs> Dave is with us as always. Dave, how are you? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good yeah, to be here. You're in Louisiana, so we've got a we've got a host of locations today. So, um, as always. All right, let's kick things off, Mr. Dan. Would you mind? Uh, playing a little something for us to get things started absolutely yeah i'll um i'll kick off with a a, a jig and a reel um so this is a uh, a great jig called calliope house which is one of my very favorite tunes and it goes into a tune which uh, i wrote called tuesday night session <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah. Pretty phenomenal. Nice job. Great. That's really cool. Thank really cool. Much. Hey, Dan. Thanks for joining us today, man. This is, um, this is a, I haven't seen you in a while, uh, which is really yeah. odd because normally yeah. you, you, you quite often make your way out here to, uh, to California, right? On, uh, on little shindigs every now and again. Um, uh, yes, I love to. I love to come out there. Sadly, might not happen for a little while by the looks of it. But uh, but yes, I do enjoy yeah. my trips very much. Yeah, and it's always a pleasure when you make it down to the factories. So, um, yeah, it's it's you know it's, it's great to have you on, and, and yet another example of of a, of a banjo player that really isn't doing things you know by the book, shall we say? Um, and there are many many books out there that tell you how you you, know, you need to do it. And I think it's important that people go down that road. But your your kind of uptake uh, at an early age was was a little different to to most. Um, and I remember you telling me when you when you first came here, like I, I, you know, asked the obvious question, like, "Hey, how did you get started?" And you kind of basically said, "Yeah, I accidentally took up the wrong instrument <laughs> by way of, <laughs> of, of the, the kind of music you were listening to." Can you give us an insight into how that all came about from a from a young? Yeah, it was weird. I was, I was, it turned out I wanted to play the trumpet, but I just took up completely the wrong thing. Um, there you go. Yeah, no. uh, so um, Miles Davis played banjo. Um, you're okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Um, I was a. I always wanted to play guitar, like right from the kind of as as soon as I could talk. Um, I was sort of badgering my mum and dad to to play guitar, and um, because uh, my parents are wonderful people, uh, they got me guitar lessons and a guitar when I was probably about eight, I think. And the the banjo thing really came about when I was. Um, I, I'm a lifelong fan of Irish and Scottish, particularly Irish traditional music. Um, and really, that's still my first love. I think that's what I always kind of come back to, whatever kind of genres I go off and experiment with. I always end up coming back to the jigs and the reels. I think that's definitely my first sort of love. And um, a couple of banjo players in particular, Jerry O'Connor and Barney McKenna, um, were the two players that really made me go, I really want to try the banjo. Um and again, my parents being wonderful, they uh, they went to the music shop in Stafford, where I'm from, and said, my son wants to play the banjo. Do you know anybody anywhere near here who teaches banjo? And indeed, do you have any banjos? <laughs> and uh, they found me lessons with a guy called George Davis uh, in Cannock, who is a uh, an absolute legend, basically, and fortunately, a wonderful, wonderful banjo teacher, because he was just about the only option. Uh, and this is pre kind of Skype and all that sort of thing as well. So it really was, you know, he was he was such a lucky find. It's unbelievable. And he said to my parents, I teach five string melodic claw hammer banjo. How does that sound? <laughs> and of course, we didn't know anything. So we were just like, yeah, it sounds great. Um, yeah. And I discovered about 18 months into playing that all the Irish music I'd listened to had been on a completely different instrument to this one. So I discovered... I to tenor banjo my entire mm. life my entire life but i had no idea so i by this point i was so into claw hammer and i loved the style so much um and i was again doubly fortunate because george like me isn't american he came up banjo you know he was a piano player and a uh, and a sort of kind of a rock musician and i suppose more than anything and discovered banjo through a few vinyl records taught himself so he came at it from quite an open sort of mind as well in terms of what the banjo could do and he taught a lot of stuff from ken perlman who is a brilliant arranger of irish and scottish music for claw hammer banjo so that really saved my my bacon really because all the music i wanted to play 
you know, I was able to sort of analyze how Ken arranged this kind of music and had a go at doing it myself. And that's kind of how it all started. But by this point, I'd got into old time and bluegrass and everything else. But I'm probably one of very few people who, in the world, I imagine, who took up five string banjo having never heard of bluegrass or old time at all. Um, there <laughs> probably aren't many people uh, for whom that's true, but that was definitely true for me. It was totally new to me. I discovered it all again about a year into playing. I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack was my introduction to bluegrass. And I was Same for a lot of people, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's interesting because you know I, I grew up in, in England too uh, up until about nine years ago so I spent you know 75% of my life south of London um, whereas you are kind of well you're midwest so you're just kind of northwest of Birmingham um, yeah. so a different part of the country but it's not a giant country I, your love of, of, of jigs and reels and Scottish and Irish music um, did that come from your location because I, I gotta tell you I'm, I was it was never on my radar growing up at all and so I wonder if it's kind of a geographical element to it or how did that come about how were you exposed to that yeah not not geographical at all uh it was only really because my dad's from uh from Liverpool um yeah. and like many people from Liverpool his family background is very Irish um so his mum and her sisters there were seven of them and they all they all played and sang. I never actually heard them do it because I just didn't. They were all quite old by the time I was sure. sort of into it. But um, but Dad had a lot of tapes. Would have been tapes at the time of I love Irish music. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Irish music. So I used to listen to loads of that stuff when I was young, and it just hooked me then, and it hooks me now. To be honest, I just absolutely fell in love with it even then. And I think, as I say, even now, just the just when you kick into a reel or a jig, there's just something irresistible about it. I just, I just love that, that kind of music. And while it's reasonably unconventional to play it in Clawhammer style, it's been done. As I say, Ken Perlman is a great arranger of it, but um, I guess Ken is very much a, um, he's very much someone who's been out to those places and he's found the raw traditional tunes and learned them from the source players and that kind of thing. Um, I suppose as a kid, I didn't really have that. I wasn't around the folk scene. We didn't go to festivals or anything like that. So it was whatever I heard on the radio or obviously as the internet became the internet as we know it, I started to listen to more and more, more and more of that stuff. But I suppose the tunes I've arranged or written are kind of from very traditionally influenced, so very much kind of jigs and reels and that type of thing. But the newer wave of tunes, and particularly when I went to university, at 18, I was surrounded by a lot of young players who were playing all the sort of what I might call new traditional tunes, kind of obviously basically brand new tunes, but kind of written in the traditional mold. Um, and then one of my hobbies has become to write jigs and reels, but try to use influences from other fields. So you mentioned the Whiplash Reel, which was my sort of Indian influenced reel. I've written a tune, bluegrass influenced jig. Um, I've written I've written a few different it's one of my main hobbies I think is to try and write in the frame of a jig and a reel but to use influences from elsewhere I guess that's how I'm trying to keep the tradition going but also you know take it in a slightly new direction as well if I can yeah absolutely so, I mean we've got a lot of people tuning in today from from the UK which is awesome hi everybody I'm just reading the chat on the second screen here um, yeah. but there's a lot of people from the US and um, just to touch is there something that defines a jig and a reel to you like the people maybe people who are not familiar with it can you kind of explain yeah what they are? definitely so jigs and reels are essentially originally both dance tunes um and the main difference is that a jig is in six eight time 
so for those not, um, you know, who maybe don't, not sure what that means, it basically means there's, we feel it's six quavers in the bar, so we go one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, so you get that. That kind of thing. And then a reel is um, in four, four times, so it's got four beats in the bar. Not dissimilar to a lot of old time tunes. Indeed, a lot of old time tunes are basically slightly reworked reels um, a lot of the time. But my sort of rather simplistic analysis of it is that a lot of old time tunes, the actual melody itself has a little bit more room in it, but the the room tends to get filled with, in the case of Clawhammer, things like the bum ditty strum. And we kind of fill the gaps with that. Um, and then uh, in bluegrass, players tend to fill it with the rolls. Um, whereas in reels, basically, uh, it just gets filled with more notes. <laughs> so generally, reels tend to be one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two and four. You know, there's generally not nearly as much space in the actual melody itself. The lot busier, um, a lot more rapid paced. Exactly, yeah. So, for instance, tunes like um, uh, Redhead Boy and Hop High Ladies are essentially mm-hmm. American versions of... Irish and Scottish tunes, so uh, Jolly Beggarman and Mrs. McLeod's Reel are the original tunes, and Redhead Boy and Hot Pie Ladies are the American versions of those tunes. A lot of a lot of crossover, right, over the years. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you yeah. play tenor banjo at all? Do you play any of the of the four string stuff, or do you stick to the, to the five string? I basically stick to five string. My, my my girlfriend bought me a mandolin last year for my birthday, which was amazing. Um, and a mandolin is the same tuning as a tenor banjo. Um, so I've learned a few tunes on mandolin. So I suppose to that extent, I can play tenor banjo, although I've never actually tried it on tenor banjo. Um, but no, I think, to be honest, it was all a very happy accident, the claw hammer thing, because I think if I'd have learned tenor banjo, I think I was passionate enough that I would have learned it, but I think I'd have probably been a reasonably kind of generic Irish tenor banjo player. And to be honest, there are some incredibly good Irish tenor banjo players who would probably do it a lot better than me. So I'm kind of glad that I ended up in a slightly different world and kind of ended up combining the various things that I liked. I think that sort of gives me a bit of a a place because I think if I'd have been a conventional old-time player or a conventional tenor banjo player, I'd probably be, you know, as I say, there'd be lots of people who do it very well already, whereas I guess my place has been to try and mix those things up a little bit. You, you certainly carved out a, a very um, a unique position for yourself, you know. Um, okay. Just reading the, reading the chat right now, as far as like, everyone is just, I've seen that five times, he's just a master, you know, all these these amazing oh. comments. And it's um, that's great to see, you know, because it, it turns heads. I think it's, it's really cool. Um, I want to just ask one quick question about kind of your style a little bit. I'm going to have Dave take over some of the questions so I can talk to some of these delightful people in the in the chat here and, and maybe yeah. get some questions from them. But your style, you know, is pretty, um, you know, it's, it's a claw hammer thing. I remember watching you play the um, uh, Whiplash Reel. Yeah. And it's it's not too dissimilar from the way you're playing, especially when you start getting into the, the real funky stuff. It's not too dissimilar from like, almost like a slap bass type effect yeah. with, with the right hand. And I'm talking as a, as a bass player. Um, yeah. Can you, can you, would you be willing to kind of go into some of that, particularly on the funky side of things, like because you're you're pretty well known for that? What are you What are you doing? What are the mechanics behind uh, what what you're doing with the banjo at that point? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to certainly trying to recreate the feel of slap bass. It's actually not 
all that similar to the technique itself because there's no real slapping of the strings involved. Um, right. The only thing I, I hit really is the banjo skin. That's, that's really the main thing that I use. Um, and I would actually say that most of my playing, I think I sometimes get asked at the camps and things, you know, what kind of weird techniques that we've never seen before are you doing? And I'm not actually, I don't actually think there are that many of those. I think it's more what I use the conventional techniques for that's that's the different bit. In the case of the syncopation funky kind of thing, so one day, a uh, very long time ago now, um, I think I, I was working on a song called Hammer and Nail um, and just sort of semi-accidentally ended up with this riff. <laughs> was kind of like oh I like I like this you know I think this kind of works and to slow it right down I'll maybe get a bit nearer to the um I'll try not although the microphone's there actually so that might not be a good idea <laughs> so, okay, um, it sounds pretty good it's not it's not cool. peaking out so you're fine usually I'll get a bit nearer anyway uh okay. so um that riff for instance I'm basically doing a, a fairly conventional slide and then a drop thumb and that's probably the less conventional bit is I'm basically hitting the skin on beat three. So I'm trying to recreate that sort of drum. I'm trying to create that feel basically. Passive, yeah. And then I'm doing a quite a, this is probably where the slap bass bit comes in is after that hit, I'm doing quite a, for want of a better word, quite a twangy thumb note there with my uh, kind of a drop thumb. Yeah, quite a pronounced kind of lift of the string, almost. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, I think that's probably where the... So there's quite a lot of syncopation in, and that basically means I'm not hitting a note on the downbeat, which which ordinarily you would do quite a lot in Clawhammer, yeah. um, but I'm using a lot of up of drop thumbing on the off beats, which is what creates that sort of sound. And I recorded a tune called Funky Haystack um, a few years ago where a great deal of the melody was actually on the off beat. So virtually all the melody was actually being played with my thumb. So if you you're going to give us a few bars. I'm barely playing anything with my finger. It's all kind of with my thumb off the beat. So you're getting a lot of that kind of effect. So it's actually all the conventional mechanics of Clawhammer, but just with very few, as I say, a lot of notes missing on the downbeats. And instead of hitting strings, I'm hitting the banjo, basically. <laughs> I think it just, it just adds something else, you know, just a little percussive, little funky, groovy. Brian Kavanaugh, as you saw that one, he, he talks about the kind of yeah. funk element a lot. And um, so it's interesting to see. So it's, it's a little bit different approach, but it, it it's certainly has that same effect. So... Um, ah. Dave, I'm going to hand over to you for a little bit while I can uh, I can talk to some guys over here. So here we go. Yeah, can you kind of explain the difference for everybody between like traditional claw hammer and melodic claw hammer playing a little bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so um, I guess with traditional claw hammer, you the the main kind of function of it, I guess, in certainly in the eyes of many, is that the fiddler is the is the the boss is the star and the banjo's role is is to provide that rhythmic percussive accompaniment with bits of the tune thrown in but the main priority is to provide the rhythmic kind of drive i guess yeah. um 
So actually, Ken Perlman, who I mentioned earlier, he's just written a really good new book um, about this, where he the traditional old time role, as mm-hmm. he you know certainly as he sees it, was was as I say very much to be the supporting role to the fiddle player, um, whereas. The melodic approach, which is what he's certainly famed for, and I think is very much the camp that I tend to fall into, is to basically treat the banjo more as a solo instrument and a lead instrument in its own right. So his new book is all about playing those old time tunes and rather than just supporting the fiddle player, actually trying to recreate what the fiddle player does Mm -hmm. on the banjo. Um, So I suppose putting it very simply, it tends to be less of the chords and more more of the melody side of things. Um, and I've, I've always been sort of wondering about this because as I've grown sort of, you know, you obviously think about your music all the time. And when I've, when I played particularly the Irish stuff and the Scottish stuff, I think to myself, well, in many ways, I'm trying to emulate what the tenor banjo right. does, which is because tenor right. banjo play with a plectrum and it's very sort of crisply clear played or when it's played well anyway. Um, and I suppose um, in many ways, that's what I'm trying to recreate with Clawhammer. But part of me thinks, you know, some people might say, well, why don't you just play Tana Banjo then? Why, why try and imitate what someone else does? And I think my answer to that is that I still like to try and use the drive and the qualities the Clawhammer has, because Clawhammer has that, 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 as I say, that rhythmic drive, that very pronounced percussive drive. And mm-hmm. even though, as I say, those tunes often don't have that much room in them for some chords, you can still put them in, I think, a bit more effectively than you can with tenor. Right. Not that I'm turning this into a competition between tenor and clawhammer, but I just mean <laughs> that clawhammer, I think, can can play Irish music in a way that hopefully stays true to the spirit of the music, but also puts its puts its own stamp on it. And I guess that's my approach to melodic clawhammer, is that I'm trying very much to treat it as a lead instrument, a melody instrument, but also trying to stay true to what made what made you know traditional old time clawhammer great as well, which is that percussive drive. Because I remember when George first played to me on my first lesson, he just demonstrated clawhammer, and I was like, "Where is all that coming from? That sounds right. like three instruments. Like right. how is that even possible?" I was just fascinated by it, and and I st- in many ways I still am, even though it's what I do. I still find it amazing that you can do that with one instrument. You know? Yeah. So how do you get all of those notes when in in, in um? Well, playing claw hammer because you know the tr- it, it's tricky because you you know you're generally just kind of going down you know you're, and so you don't have both ways to go you have the you can do some drop thumbing but are you doing anything else to get you know to get those you know, there's a steady stream of eighth notes happening all the time yeah. on a, like a reel or something yeah there's there's a few different ways I think um, yeah as you say drop thumbing is a big one um, yeah. so. I guess when I'm arranging tunes, I'm very much approaching it from the angle of, you know, on each beat of the bar, I know that it's almost certainly going to be a down pick with my with my nail. Right. What happens on the upbeat could be a combination of, uh, so certainly drop thumbing, left hand slurs are great uh, as well. So things like pull offs and a lot slides. of hammer ons and pull offs and things. I do a lot of that, and I also do a lot of the alternate string ones. Um, so a conventional hammer on would be to play a string. And then right. hammer on to that same string, or from one fret to another on the same string, right. um, and same with pull off. Whereas what I use quite a lot of are the off string pull offs, where I hit one style sort of, thing. and then on the off beat, use my left hand finger That's to it. get that note. I much prefer that as a technique to the. I find off string hammer ons often sound rather weak. 
Um, so I often think of them as a little bit of a last resort. If I, if I can't think of any other way to get that combination of notes, right, then right. I might use it. But generally, it's as I say, a little bit of a a little bit of a last resort. I'm quite fond as well of the technique where you sort of you can play one string and then follow through down the right. strings as well. Right. Um, so in fact, that first tune uh, I saw that. that was, yeah, I saw that on yeah, that first tune. I saw it a few times. That was with your finger or your thumb doing that. A bit of both, actually, yeah. So um, if I slow it right down. So you've got a finger, thumb, yep. finger, follow through, thumb. Uh-huh. So it's kind of any combination of, however I get those that combination of notes, it's sort of a, it's a bit of a game trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, Sometimes there are easier ways to play things, but I go for the harder option because it, it has a better quality of sound. Um, right. Because often there are certain notes that I don't want to be slurred, so I don't want like a slide or a hammer or something. I want a proper strong note, mm-hmm. and generally the strongest notes are going to be found with my finger or my thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned about the sort of down-up, down-up thing, because um, with descending runs... It's generally easier because of drop thumbing. We can just, you know, we can do that. When it's an ascending run, that's a little bit more awkward. So generally, it's often a case of trying to find, um, like if I've got, let's say, a G and I want to go up to an A, if I don't want to have a hammered note, I'll have to find the A on my fourth string and drop thumb it that way so that I get sufficient strength. Similar um, to, to melodic playing than the three finger style, where you have to—I don't yes. know—similar yeah, idea. It is exactly, yeah, very similar idea. And the, the other complication in the in the Celtic tunes is that they use a lot of um, same note triplets. Yeah, uh, that's what I was—that's what I was wanted to ask you because I, I was watching your your duet with Bruce McGregor on Facebook. Oh uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> and and I noticed right away you're doing you know the the triplets like a tenor banjo player would do. And I couldn't instantly figure out how you were doing that. So, I mean, I've never seen it on somebody playing Clawhammer doing that before. So, I'm I'm probably about to reveal a dark secret that I'm going to regret. But um, there's there's, <laughs> it, 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 there's, a, there's a couple of, of ways of doing those. The um, the truth is they're really hard in Clawhammer because <laughs> yeah. uh, um, not that I'm a Scruggs player, but I would imagine as a Scruggs player it's slightly easier because you've got the picks and you essentially just play. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's hard to get it clean, but it's it's definitely easiest with a flat pick on tenor. But uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Ken Perlman again came up with this technique of using essentially your playing nail as a as a pick. So playing down, up, down with your actual playing with, finger. So one finger going down, up, down, up. Yeah. So like. Um, like that. The problem I have with that is um, I'm not very good at it, and especially not when I'm playing fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are two solutions that I use. One is to find the same note on an adjacent string and play one string, drop them the other, and then play the first one again. Mm-hmm. Like that. Oh, sorry, I didn't do that very well. Um, no. But to be completely honest with you, this is where the dark secret comes in. I often cheat altogether <laughs> and um, basically play a triplet that sounds like a same note triplet but isn't quite. Um, 
so I actually play, so in fact that Bruce McGregor tune. Sounds like a same note triplet, but analyze it closely. Right. <laughs> and I'm actually playing the notes, doing a kind of hammer on and then pulling off again. So it's mm -hmm. actually not exactly the same note, but my, right. my yeah. try and make the hammer quite percussive so that it's not, it doesn't sound too much like it's. Right, yeah. It kind of makes it sound more of a percussive thing. So it does come out, hopefully, very like, very much like a same note triplet. Right, right. Um, and my justification for it is that um, usually the, the, the speed is sufficient that no one really notices that it's not the same note anyway. But also just that um, it's the best way to get the effect mm -hmm. and stay true to the spirit of it. But recognize that the style isn't designed for it and it's kind of a, hopefully a cheat that works and satisfies you know enough enough of each uh aspect of the 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 dilemma <laughs> to make I, it work. I think it works it sounded great i didn't notice that you know i <laughs> I'm, really, I'm very glad you didn't notice i'm, I'm only sorry for that first that <laughs> Um, I'm glad you didn't notice. No, it's good to know the, the little the little secrets that make things a little bit. Yeah, easier. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> are you using also because doing that that down up thing? Are you using a fake nail, or do you have your nails grown out? It is it is my actual nail um, mm -hmm. at the moment. I do sometimes wear um, a uh, plastic finger pick because a, a little while ago. Um, to be honest, my 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 nail really hurt because I think I've just been playing so much for so long and it had taken its toll a little bit. And I remember thinking, well, at the moment I can play okay, but if if on the night of a gig my nail is so painful I can't use it, I don't want that gig to be the first time I ever try with a pick. No, um, so I went and bought from the local guitar shop just one of these plastic guitar finger picks. Yeah. Um, tried playing with it and actually quite liked it. So for a while I was playing with it pretty much all the time. Um, mm -hmm. Just lately I've got back into just using my finger um, for no particular reason other than I think, I don't know, I guess especially with lockdown and everything because I yeah, just yeah. Sort of pick up the banjo and play. The pick wasn't by you. <laughs> and think of the neighbours, of course. Um, I, um, I think I sort of realised that actually my nail was okay again. And so lately I've just been playing with my nail. But I think if, for instance, I split it or, it, you know, for whatever reason, then I might use a, might use a pick at that point. And you're you using your middle know. finger. I generally do, yeah. I can um, I, again. I've I've used my index before, just because it's nice exactly. to have the option if one yeah. of them splits or whatever. But exactly. uh, generally, I would say I'm a middle finger player. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Jamie, do we have any any uh, questions coming in right now? We have a few actually. You actually just answered one of them, so um, <clears throat> oh, <that. laughs> about, the, about the about the finger pick. So that was that was perfect. Uh, I was curious myself. Um, there's certainly a, a, a few, uh, one, one guy in particular, but there's a couple of people who have had similar sentiments. Um, tenor guy, um, playing tenor, playing kind of jigs and reels, uh, but is kind of experimenting and moving into five string and looking for some advice on uh, that transition, um, moving over yeah. from one, again, playing similar style of music and, and maybe picking up some of those traditional pieces, but on a five string. Any advice for those guys? Yeah, I think from a from a technical perspective, I guess um, flat picking and claw hammer are more are more similar than it might appear. So I guess I was always taught. Um, I had some guitar 
because I play guitar too, and I had some flat picking lessons with Chris Newman a while ago, which was uh, which was really great. And he basically taught me the idea that on the beat you use your down pick, and on the upbeat you use your you 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 pick upwards. So you basically have this ongoing down up down up down up thing. Um, in the case of four four that is if you're playing a jig it's more like down up down down up down down up down down up down to get this sort of accent in the right place um and really i would apply exactly the same logic to claw hammer it's just that our down pick is our nail and our up pick is our thumb or left hand slur type thing but it's basically trying to create that sort of rhythmic stability in terms of the timing because i think realistically you're not going to down pick every quaver because it would sound horrible and it would probably kill your arm <laughs> so um it's much better to kind of have a very firm idea of where you are in the bar so what i would say to someone who's playing a reel for the first time whether they're coming from tenor banjo or not really is um if the bar is you know one and two and three and four and and there are eight eight notes there um then just think carefully okay on the one i want to be playing with my finger on the and i want to be using either my thumb and if that's not possible a left hand slur of some kind and just really be quite systematic about it to begin with which might feel very kind of mechanical and not very free and easy but actually if you sort of ingrain those technical habits early on then I think you can begin to apply them a bit more subconsciously and then you won't need to think about it quite so much. But I think it's important to do it systematically to begin with to make that transition work. I think that's how I, that, that's probably my number one. My number one tip, I guess, um, would be just to, yeah, to, to think about it that way. That's great advice. Uh, I think that probably answered the, the question for a number of guys uh, on, on the chat line there, which is really cool. Um, Blue Tuesday, who's in the UK watching, um, asks, do you play any slip jigs? Yes, one or two. Yeah, I do. I like slip jigs a lot. So yeah. um, I, I don't know what that is. So you're going to have to demonstrate. Yeah. So, so um, <laughs> slip jigs are in are in nine eight. Um, yeah. So uh, I mentioned earlier, normal jigs are in six eight. So one two yep. three four five six. One two three four five six. Basically, a nine eight jig is is exactly the same but with an extra group of three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, like that. Do you um, mind uh, giving us a, a quick I could, yeah. Miles, or is that something put you on the spot? Yeah, well I tell you what, I might combine two of my favourite influences because um I, one of my more recent tunes is a slip jig, but I wrote it it's one of my slightly Indian inspired numbers. Um <laughs> So this was, in fact, the last time I went to India was with Deering Banjos. And, um, Stop there, because I'm going to segue into that in a minute. So. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> uh, well, this, this was a tune I heard, that, that trip anyway. And, or no, not this tune, but this um, Indian uh, raga was one I heard on that trip. And I thought, I really love that sound. I want to write something that uses a bit of that. So this is the result. Um, so this is called Sunrise Jig. And this is, um, yeah, this is a slip jig. So it's in 9-8, but using a bit of an Indian scale. <laughs> Thank you. 
was really cool. Yeah. I, I, I was trying to count the whole time. But yeah, was, uh, <laughs> well, I, I um, yeah, I mean, uh, the sort of the more uh, e- eagle, uh, the more sort of astute listeners may have noticed that I completely forgot my own tune the first time round, but the second time it was it was all it was all there. <laughs> so you, you kind of tipped on this, but right before we went into that that demonstration, you you've spent a, a, you've been to India a few times, not just the one time with with the Deerings, but you've been on several trips there. Um, probably most most recently, I think with with the Deering family, with Greg and Janet and, uh, and Jamie. Um, yeah. Give us an insight, I mean, not necessarily about that trip in particular, but going to India, seeing just a completely different part of the world, how do they, how do they react to the banjo as an instrument and, and kind of what are the similarities there? That's got to be a pretty intriguing experience. Yeah, it was. It was um, I think the, the first time I went was in 2013, and um, at that point, I'd never actually done any uh, foreign touring, so it was uh, quite a quite an introduction uh, to go to, wow. uh, to go to India. <laughs> um, and it all happened quite last minute. So I was invited by um, uh, the English Folk Society. Basically, uh, they they sort of had this project with the British Council in in India. So they. They put together four Brits and six musicians from India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, and um, basically a bit like the transatlantic sessions kind of idea. So, sort of bunged us in a hotel for a couple of weeks and invited, just encouraged us to jam and come up with stuff. And then, and then they said there'd be a, an, an informal sharing at the end, <laughs> which was a lot more formal than I expected from that to be honest it was more like a a gig essentially um but the the whole experience was amazing because for me um i i was already quite interested in those sorts of scales so things like um some of those sort of middle eastern scales and things like that i was already really interested in that um but not specifically the sort of indian thing and then when i went out there and I was sort of in a room with a couple of these musicians who didn't really speak much English at all. And this sitar player sort of played something at me and sort of just sort of paused and, and looked at me. So I kind of tried to find the notes on the, on the banjo. And, um, and I, I just sort of, it, it seemed to actually fit quite well because I was familiar with some of the scales already, but the whole thing of sort of bending the notes and trying to recreate that sitar-like sound it sort of again happened a bit like my entire musical career it happened slightly by accident but it was <laughs> it was something I, I thought was really good and it was a real example of how powerful music is as a communicator between us because as I say we didn't have a lot of language in common some of us and um and so I think the Indians were in answer to your question the Indians were really interested in the banjo they were interested in I think any instrument it was interesting the trip with the Deerings we went to a festival in Jodhpur and um the, we had a Deering Good Time banjo with us and we, we, we sort of invited some of the Indian guys to have a go on it. And they immediately, all of them went like this, put the banjo down and sort oh, of interesting. went at it in a complete, you know, in a way that we obviously just wouldn't expect people to play those instruments. But they really were as fascinated with the banjo as I was with their instruments. It was a real, I, I, I was really sort of touched by the attitude of the Indian musicians because I was terrified because I sort of accidentally ended up, I think they thought maybe um that i oh yeah there you go yeah <laughs> um so i think they maybe slightly thought that i knew what i was doing 
just because I was able to sort of pick out the scale and have a bit of an improvise with them. And what I was trying to do was sort of copy some of their um, some of their sort of musical cues. So they use quite a few things like this. Um, those sorts of patterns. It's often like their cue to like the end of a section or the end of a solo. And I sort of picked up on this and tried doing it at the end of my solos. And I think they ran away with the idea that I had a clue what I was doing, which as I say, I totally didn't <laughs> really. Um, but I think it, what I was touched about was because, because of that anyway, because they, I, I, they thought I knew what I was doing, poor fools. Um, I ended up playing this raga in this gig in Calcutta in front of Indian people <laughs> and I was terrified because I was thinking they, I'm going to get completely rumbled here as the you know bloke from England who hasn't got a clue what he's doing and actually their attitude was very much we're just so touched that someone from outside India wants to play our music that that's what they were really pleased about they really thought that was wonderful that we wanted to we wanted to try their music I remember at one point in the gig another of the musicians from England did a vocal harmony in um, Hindi and the crowd cheered like someone had just scored a goal in a football match. Like it was, it, they were just like amazed that someone was singing their language. It was that was a brilliant thing as far as they were concerned. So it was a really nice attitude the whole the whole thing. And I ended up touring with this Indian sarangi player, Suhail Yusuf Khan, an incredible musician. And um, we ended up doing everything from. Indian ragas to um, Shady Grove and and uh, things like that and kind of you know a whole bunch of different stuff because we were both so keen to sample you know all the different kinds of music and that was mm -hmm. that was yeah that was an amazing experience and obviously it's had a lasting effect on my my music as well I've written a few things that are Indian influenced it, it's yeah it certainly comes through really well and it, the, the banjo that that kind of sound lends itself really well to almost kind of recreate that sitar type effect, um, which is really yeah. cool. It's interesting because I know there's a couple of artists that we have out here in, in the US um, who have in the in the age of COVID, you know, not being able to travel and doing all this kind of thing, they've, they've really uh, used technology to link up with certain people abroad. So, you know, Hank Smith, I know, is, is uh, doing regular spots online with, with people in the Netherlands and parts of Europe that he actually may not have otherwise been able to do as regularly. Has has any of that come up with with you as far as maybe maybe some of the guys in India at all that you met or have had the chance to collaborate with um, going into this weird time? <laughs> uh, oh, it is a weird time, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it's happened generally, to be honest. Um, so um, I must give great credit actually to uh, Kieran Algar, who is the fiddle player in my trio that I that I play with. Um, he sort of. As soon as lockdown struck, he was straight on it and he started doing these split screen collaborations. And he was kind of the first of my sort of English folk scene anyway. He was kind of the first one to really do it. Um, and I thought that looks like fun. So I thought I'd, I'd try a bit of that as well. So I've... Um, I've collaborated with all with yeah with lots of people during this time. So if you if anyone is interested, if you go on my Facebook page, my Instagram page, or my YouTube channel, um, there's there's all these videos are there. Um, there's a couple in the works with the Indian guys, so there should be two uh, very soon. There's one with a tabla player, which I'm really excited about doing, um, but it's a piece I haven't played before, so I'm spending an awful lot of time working that out on banjo because it's quite a challenge. Uh, but when that's ready, I think that'll be really fun. But 
Um, yeah, I've been doing a load of these split screens. So um, David there mentioned Bruce McGregor, who's like one of the top Scottish fiddle players of, uh, well, of all time, arguably. And um, I managed to persuade him to do one. That was great. Uh, ended up doing one with Sharon Shannon, who's um, uh, an unbelievable accordion player from Ireland, one of the real legends of the Irish music scene. That was a real, that was a real thrill for me, that one. That was, uh, that was a really sort of surreal experience. And um so I've ended up doing yeah a few collaborations with a whole different bunch of people, which has managed to sort of take my playing in new directions. And also, I very hurriedly learned how to edit videos as well. Um, so that might yeah. come in handy as well. Haven't we all done that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, David. Are you using away. any uh, alternate tunings for for lots of the Indian music, or or is it all generally out of G tuning that you're using? Um, so I, yeah, the, the tuning thing with banjo. Um, generally, I've I've mostly used G double C yeah. or um, sawmill. Uh, really, other than those, I have used other tunings on occasion, but but quite rarely, really. Um, which is for two reasons, really. I, the main reason is that when I was eighteen, I went to university and did a degree in folk and traditional music in Newcastle, and a lot of the sessions there were heavily Scottish, so a lot of Scottish fiddle players, and they would do these medleys where they'd rattle through seven or eight tunes, all in different keys. And I think up to that point, I largely played, like many banjo players, I played things in G, in G tuning, mm -hmm. or C, or C tuning, or capoed equivalents. Mm -hmm. um, and it sort of started to dawn on me that this wasn't really going to work because I couldn't be retuning and recapoing mm -hmm. after everything because I'd never you know I'd never get to play anything basically so I started to try and work more out of the one tuning so G tuning became my sort of go-to tuning where I feel like I know the tuning very well and I can right. find the different scales and the different chords and that kind of thing but I still love using double C for particular sounds because I think yeah. it does have a sound all its own and same with sawmill I think they both have a great sound mm -hmm. um so uh, in terms of the Indian stuff, though, it's not it's not especially um, kind of geared towards a particular tuning. My main thing with Indian music is I try and make sure that the bottom string is the root note um, because Indian music has a lot of droney, you mm -hmm. know, it's not really built on chords, it's built on rhythms and melodies. So it's quite handy every now and again to be able to hit that bottom string. <laughs> sort of you know banjo doesn't have a lot of bass so it's kind of the you know the most bass we can have <laughs> i suppose i, t I tr tend to try and use that a bit um and same with tend to play in, in, in certain tunings the indian players would there are certain keys that they that they generally lean towards a lot um not not especially from my experience but i mean i'd never claim to be a leading expert either i might add but um but certainly from jamming with them out there and everything they it, there didn't seem to be any particular Right. Sort of staple key or anything though um but again double c was quite good so whiplash reel which is the one jamie mentioned earlier so again it's handy in this key because i've got that low note there um and whiplash reel i play the, the actual tune itself is a reel um, 
is a, is a reel, but then I now perform it with a big section in the middle where I sort of do a bit of improvising. And at that point, it's really handy to have that bottom string just to give it a bit of depth while I'm noodling away on the, on the top mm-hmm. two strings. It's actually very similar to how Indians play as well because they most of their instruments are designed where the number of melody strings is quite small, it tends to be two or three mm-hmm. melody strings, but about a zillion resonance yeah. underneath. Um, so the sarangi, for instance, the one that Suhail plays, is I'm fascinated by this instrument because, in fact, every gig we did in on our UK tour was hilarious because it just sort of turned into a bit of a, a lecture from him about the sarangi because right. you just all the crowd. No one wanted to talk to me after those gigs. All the crowd just gathered round Suhail while he demonstrated the sarangi. But it basically just had yeah these three strings that he played the melody on, and then. Oh, it's hundreds of resonant strings underneath. Mm-hmm. How we ever tuned it, I don't know. We have enough trouble with these things. How we how we tune that, I'll never know. Yeah, and then uh, and then what was I going to say? Do you you play a lot of um, a lot of your recordings are solo recordings? I noticed. Um, is there a reason for that, or just that's the way it came apart? Yeah, I did. I. I sort of did it a slightly weird way around in that my my very first album in 2009, I think. Uh-huh. That's over 10 years ago. That's scary. Anyway, 2009, I um I was a uh, I was in final final year of university and I really wanted to make an album and I wanted to I was starting to gig more so I wanted a CD to sell at gigs. Um but I, being a kind of naive student, I thought, let's just get all my friends on it and have like a really big fat sound. Right. Um, so, but of course I had no money. <laughs> so I did a very kind of ambitious album in about three days where I had bass and drums and all kinds of stuff on. And there's some of the material on that album I still like. I, you know, there's some where yeah. I cringe no end, but there's some that I like. But my first album was actually quite a band heavy album. And and my second solo album was as well, the same but different. That was, again, I very much went for a sort of Dan Walsh band type feel. Mm-hmm. But then it sort of dawned on me that, well, most of the gigs I'm doing are on my own. So, I mean, it makes sense to have an album that's a bit more on my own. So I recorded Incidents and Accidents, which was virtually totally solo, apart from a couple of guest appearances from a fiddle player and a mandolin player. And um, to be honest, that was probably, you know, I was really pleased with that album and, and it went down very well. So for the next album, myself and Mark, Hutchinson who produces my my albums he sort of said well let's stick with that formula because it it yeah. works uh, it's cheap <laughs> and um and it sort of recreates what you do live so the Virgin yeah. on the Perpendicular was an even more solo heavy album yeah, yeah. um but my most recent album was called Trio uh, which as the name suggests no. um was, was a trio album so that that one was a little bit different and I play with the Urban Folk Quartet so that's my other main project is I play with the Urban Folk Quartet so in a way my sort of my band fix is sort of met yeah. by them so I guess I then really enjoy doing my solo stuff because it's it's very different from the material I do with them and I do love playing solo I mean it's one of those things I always come back to I, I love playing with other people I love doing all the collaborations and all those right. things but I must admit I always end up going back to solo playing because I love it just being on stage and just having the freedom to sort of experiment a little bit and it not put anyone else out. And I think Clawhammer, and especially the way I play with hitting the skin and everything, it does lend itself quite well to solo anyway. Right. 
Um, I also sing a lot and write songs a lot. And I think when I perform solo, I can tell those stories and that's mm -hmm. quite a big part of the show as well. Um, and from a purely practical level, to be honest, touring yeah. solo is great because um, you can you can kind of just do do what you want. So I remember driving through New Zealand on tour and just, you know, if you just drive past some amazing scenery or or some bizarre shop in the middle of nowhere, so you can just get out and do it and you don't have mm -hmm. to check in with anyone or anything. You, there's a kind of a freedom to that that I really enjoy as well. But touring with Urban Folk Quartet is is fantastic. We get on really well as a, as a band and we're really missing it because we i haven't seen them since march because they they've got um the two of the band a couple and there's quite an ill relative who lives near them who, and everything so they're having to be very very cautious about seeing anybody um so i haven't seen my band at all since march and that's been really hard because i think we we get a lot out of just sitting around rehearsing uh, as much as the gigs and we're yeah. all really missing that definitely and did you see yourself when you said you, your gigs were mostly solo kind of at the beginning did that just kind of happen just because that was you know it's kind of easier to get solo gigs and and just have necessity like that and then it developed where you kind of found you liked it and were good at it yeah i guess i guess so yeah i, th I think i always liked it in a way i think even as a teenager i, I always enjoyed the element of i don't want to say control because that makes me sound freedom that you have but i like i do sort of there, there is a kind of i like the sort of pet project of right this is the material i'm going to do and i want to write it this way and and think mm -hmm. about it I, I there is something i like i think i always liked about that yeah. and yeah. i think in a way people ask me do you not get terribly nervous playing on your own uh, like performing on your own yeah. and to be honest if anything i'm the other way around i'm actually yeah. more nervous playing with other people because i think when you play with other people you obviously don't want to let them down you don't want to play something wrong that derails the entire thing and also you've really got to rehearse it and be tight and all the rest of it and i think as musicians we've all done those gigs where you know we've been asked to depth for someone or something and it's all a bit last minute and it's mm -hmm. i find that far more stressful than oh, just yeah, playing yeah. my own and knowing what i'm doing knowing what you're doing yeah, yeah um but the practical element was definitely always there it's very handy to play a fretted instrument and sing because you can get a solo gig and yeah. solo gigs are generally easier to get logistically they're quite easy yeah. to be let's be completely blunt about this you generally get a bit more money as well rather than sharing <laughs> exactly. it in, in, and so yeah practically speaking it does work quite well as well <laughs> did you always sing did you grow up singing because your singing's really strong and uh it's yes. not it doesn't sound like something that you're just doing out of necessity because oh well there's no not a singer around so i got to be the singer sort of thing but uh you you, you know so did you were you as a as a young kid were you a singer kind of originally um it totally was like a necessity thing so mm -hmm. my band at school um we we kind of yeah i just sort of ended up singing um and never really thought of myself as a serious singer i kind of mm -hmm. thought i'm just singing in this band because no one else wants to <laughs> um mm -hmm. but i've always loved songs i've always loved songwriting and i've always loved um yeah, like like a lot of the music I listen to is 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 songs, but I sort of thought when I went to university, I thought, well, my singing career will probably be over now because there'll be lots of amazing singers on the course, and I can just concentrate on playing banjo. Mm. And what actually happened was we were doing um, a module at university called vocal group. So fairly obviously, it was just all of us singing in a kind of choir, I suppose. And mm. Sandra Kerr, the legendary Sandra Kerr, one of the tutors on the course, she singled me out and said um 
said, your singing is great. And that was really nice because I'd never thought of myself as a serious singer wow. at all. I'd yeah. always just thought of myself as someone who kind of sang a bit. But that really gave me some confidence. And better than that, she also said, you are a great singer, but the way you're singing is going to kill you because basically you don't breathe properly. And, right. and she pointed out a bunch of technical things that I was doing very badly because I'd never been taught how to sing. So she was a massive help in that respect as well because I learned how to kind mm -hmm. of enunciate bit better and breathe and all that sort of thing and and yeah and gradually my confidence grew but really it's relatively recent I would say it's the last couple of albums where I've actually thought of myself as where I thought is an asset rather than something I do because to be honest the British folk scene in particular is very song heavy people mm -hmm. like songs they like singing along so I kind of in a way, yeah, there was an element of necessity about it. I was sort mm -hmm. of like, I need to do songs because otherwise, you know, people will get bored of just listening to banjo all night. Um, but now I actually uh, really enjoy that part of it. But I would very much still consider myself banjo player first and foremost, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that, that's my that's my forte. But I do now enjoy the singing a lot more than than I ever did, really. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it sounds, it's really good. And, uh, but, um. You mentioned earlier when you were playing, showcasing one of your tunes, you kind of forgot some of the tune as you were playing. Yeah. But, like, I, you know, you didn't, we didn't notice it over here. So oh, that, what that's <laughs> highlighting is, you know, a lot of players that are, that are be, beginning players, you know, when they hit, hit a mistake, they stop playing. Or, yeah. like, can you talk a little bit about playing through your mistakes and, and you know, getting over that hump there? Yeah, absolutely. Funnily enough, because I, I teach a lot anyway, and especially at the moment for obvious reasons, because I'm not able to gig. So um, I do a lot of teaching. And more and more, I'm feeling that psychology is like as much, if not a bigger part of it as as technique. You learn the technique to, to, express, the, to express the emotion and the communication. Mm -hmm. And I think that playing through your mistakes is, is one element of that where um, I think that, that it's really easy when you're when you're playing, as you say, you kind of. I think a lot of the time mistakes happen because you're thinking, "Don't make a mistake, don't play it wrong." And of course, the minute you do, mm -hmm. it goes to pot. And of course, the irony is that you make yourself make a mistake by worrying about making a mistake <laughs> as well. Um, and it's actually you play better music and you enjoy it more by playing it with conviction and by playing with feeling. And I know that this is easier said than done sometimes if you're very nervous and all the rest of it, but mm -hmm. actually sometimes you do have to remind yourself that you will never play better by playing tentatively. You will never play better by playing with uncertainty. You will always play better by going for it that bit more. And I don't mean playing louder or playing mm -hmm. faster. I mean just just playing with conviction. So just, you know, I mean, um, and I mean, certainly one of my students brings to mind who is an unbelievable banjo player. But um, for a while, it was trying to get that student to realize the potential because they would get to this point where it was tricky and you could see the, the shoulders would tense. There was mm -hmm. a kind of apologetic nature about the, you know, the playing and it was kind of very unsure. And it did no favours. And in the end, I think sometimes you have to kind of fake it till you make it almost and really feel it in your body, you know, 
nod your head a little bit, maybe in the shoulders, tap your foot, everything to make it to make it feel like you're expressing yourself and enjoying yourself rather than being terrified of making a mistake. Because mm-hmm. actually, when you do make a mistake, every musician makes a mistake. Mm-hmm. I just played a tune on a live stream of the leading banjo company in the world and forgot my own tune um, <laughs> and, uh, and actually didn't get it back at all. I just went to the A part and hoped that I'd remember it the next time. But mm-hmm. as you say, you didn't notice. Right. <laughs> so, so you do have to sort of, like I say, yeah, you just have to kind of stay in that stay in that rhythm. And I suppose a more technical bit of advice would be, if you have forgotten where you are, do what I did, which is actually fake it a little bit by just comping a little bit on the rhythm. So let's say it's an all-time tune in 4-4 and it's got a kind of bum ditty rhythm in it or something like that, and you forget where you are in the tune, just do this for a minute. And then start again. And that would be far more convincing than going like, oh no, <laughs> and being incredibly tentative right. about yeah. it for the rest of it. So it's, That's it's great a- if you're playing solo, but if you're playing with a group, do you have any advice for getting through something? Yeah, that's the- a good Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Again, though, I still think it's quite psychological because I think it's like you you have to take a second rather than just like completely panic, just take a second and go, okay, where are we? Maybe listen for the start of the A part again mm-hmm. or the B part, wherever you are. Um, take a bit of a cue, you know, just just try and get back as soon, you know, as right. soon as you can and just, and just stay where you are. But I suppose as well, it's about sort of um, kind of feeling the tune in its entirety mm-hmm. rather than, trying to muscle memorize every last every note every last note because ultimately the, the problem with that approach is if you do lose it you kind of lose it when you think, yeah. you think of it as a round yeah. then at least you kind of jump back in you know and and, and I, or even you know even if you do completely lose the tune you know i play with a guy called um alistair anderson who's a, a 71 year old concertina player from the northeast of england an amazing musician um, and I'm sure he won't mind me telling you this story, but uh, we, we played a while ago and um, <laughs> we were playing one of his tunes, but he got to the B part, completely forgot what, what the tune was doing, mm-hmm. completely went off on one and just sort of quite convincingly kind of, um, again, just kept the rhythm, kept a bit of the groove. He's quite an expressive performer anyway, so that kind of helped. But mm-hmm. really, he didn't play any of the actual tune until we got to the beginning of it again, mm-hmm. but no one would have known. Um, so, you know, I think if you can just find something to play that, that fits in yeah. until you're ready to get back into the tune, that's probably my, that's yeah. probably my, uh, my tip, I think. Good advice there. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> I've let you into all kinds of dark secrets in this. I was just going to say, this is like how a, a how to fake it through <laughs> and not let anybody know. <laughs> For a lot of our audience, Dan, are, are you know fairly uh, they're either beginners or they, they don't necessarily have <clears throat> anything like the experience that you do. So a couple of questions that have come up in the in the chat here are um, any advice on things that people can practice on a more daily basis um, to kind of really kind of find their way through learning banjo and, and trying to and that confidence that you spoke about that just a second ago. Yeah. It's so important, and if they can compare themselves, hopefully at a time where you know, COVID has maybe passed a little bit and they can start getting out gigging again and they've got that kind of yeah. confidence level to where um, the technical side is down. 
what are some things that they can pick up on and, and kind of keep repeating and going through on a day to basis that, that might help you or them? Um, yeah, I think um, I definitely am a big believer that um, you you it's a lot easier to speed up good technique and sure technique than it is to try and run before you can walk. And I think that's the trap that a lot of people fall into is, and it's understandable. And God, George will tell you, I was the most guilty of it when I was learning as a teenager. But I think that um, the temptation is to immediately, I want to play tunes. I want to launch into playing loads of tunes. And actually, I think it's that you need to do that a little bit because obviously you want to get the excitement going. I'm just going to retune for this actually. But I think if you can be absolutely sure of your technique and the rhythms involved and things like that, then it'll be a lot easier to play things at a greater speed. So for example, the thing I mentioned earlier about always following, assuming we're in 4-4 four, four time, following this pattern of down, up, down, up, down, up, and knowing that if you're going to play one, two, three, or four, you're going to be playing with your finger. And if you're playing on an and, you're going to be using your thumb or a left-hand slur. The more that that is ingrained in you, the stronger your playing will be because you'll know exactly, uh, you'll be keeping yourself in time. You'll know exactly where in the bar you are. Your notes will have the right accent, all that kind of thing. So I guess exercise-wise, bum ditty and things like that are always just great to practice. You can do it while you're watching the TV, you know, just... You can do that till your heart's content. Drop thumbing is a big one as well. So drop thumbing um, for those not in the know. I know this is a very banjo-centric audience, uh, but um, drop thumbing is where your, your thumb drops down to play other strings besides the fifth string. Um, so again, the more you can practice that and be sure of how you're doing it. Set yourself little exercises where you play different patterns in different orders, just so that you've got total control over which string you're striking and getting that that cleanliness of note and clarity of note that you want. My big advice with drop thumbing is to get your thumb to, to land on whatever string you're going to play with your thumb as you do the downstroke. So kind of think two notes ahead, if you like. So play that first note and get your thumb to land there. Even if I'm doing that crazy funky thing, my thumb is landing on the string when I hit the skin. It's still the same principle. How, whatever it is that you're doing, your thumb needs to think sort of that far ahead. So I'd, rec I'd recommend any sort of drop thumbing exercise like that of just keeping that going. Sure. Something like this is really good. So bum ditty one, two, one, five. I do that every day when I pick up the banjo, basically, just to get my right hand warmed up and all that sort of thing. Sometimes I tune my banjo when I do it as well. Um, and um, so anything like that is is good. Um, what was the other one I was going to say? Yeah, if you're getting into things like syncopation as well, um, if you take that pattern that I just did, one, two, one, five, take out the first note. So instead of one, two, one, five, you've got like gap, two, one, five, gap, two, one, five, and then team that up with the bum ditty. It's a great way into getting used to more sort of syncopated rhythms and just having that kind of control um, over what you're doing. 
one of the things I, I do in my private lessons with with students and also with my um, new subscription page, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit, um, is I'm going to do a video on kind of joining in with things because you mentioned Jamie once you know this blooming virus has gone and we can get back to sessions and things like that. Um, one of the things that I think people are often nervous about is joining in with a session. They love the idea of it, but it's kind of what to do if you don't know the tune, I suppose. You know, how do I join in with that and make that work? Um, and in the old time sector, you know, being able to sort of back up well with claw hammer rhythms and different chord shapes and that kind of thing, it's, you know, there's a few little tricks and things that you can learn that can really help with that. And today I was teaching someone and we were doing a session on... Um, she wanted to join in on the banjo with basically with pop music, with when people are sat around playing guitars, playing, singing songs. We were doing Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue and Natalie. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And sort of looking at how you would join in with that and things. And it's, it's you know, it, it's there's often sort of core things that you can pick up on that hopefully can, can enable you to join in a bit more easily. Some really good advice. Really like that. Um, yeah, you, you touched on it a little bit. You, you know, you're one of the, the many musicians in the world right now that, that you were relying basically on gigs, you know, the whole time. Um, yeah. And so your your livelihood to some extent has been uh, decimated to, to some degree, but you're, you're looking at different avenues. And so I want to give you an opportunity to talk about a couple. First one being wonderful book, which I have a copy of oh, yes. right here, which is yeah. really cool. Um, I'm going to drop a couple of links down in the chat and in the video description as well. But this is it's really cool because it really goes through um, the whole introduction, the whole uh, technique and what to look for. But then it goes through some of the songs from your albums. Right, yeah. So talk to us about the book and, and kind of what, what uh, readers can expect there. Yeah, I mean, um, I've been wanting to do a book for, for ages and I'd had quite a few requests for tabs of things I'd recorded or things that I'd played live. Um, so, um, so I thought the time had come really just to sort of put it together and I was never quite sure. I'm, I mean, I'm not completely terrible with computers, but I'm no expert either. So I wasn't exactly sure how to format a book, but I realized it was reasonably, you know, I could, I could do it in, in a, you know, to a reasonable standard once I'd figured it out. And I was kind of umming and ahhing over what kind of book to do. And in the end, as I say, I thought there'd been a bit of demand for stuff, you know, tabs from things that I'd recorded that I thought it was time to to do that. But what I've tried to do is include a section at the beginning of the book, which is more about explaining how I approach arranging tunes and, um, you know, technical things to think about uh, when you're approaching any kind of tab. Because um, it's very much not a, you know, beginner's how to play the banjo book. It's it's a, you know, it's a book of repertoire from my album. So it's from that point of view, I suppose it's aimed at the intermediate advanced end of things. But I would hope that the section in the beginning, you know, might well be useful for anybody because I think it explains a little bit about how how I think you can approach claw hammer arranging quite systematically. So that rather than just relying on tabs of things that you want to, you know, that you want to play, um because, you know, you often see it, don't you? You think, has anyone got a tab for this or a tab for that? And actually, I hope that that section maybe explains a little bit about how you can go about arranging it yourself. Um, and then, obviously, there are the tabs as well, uh, if you want to try the, the the things that I've played as well. Um, but, yes, I really enjoyed doing the book. And I've got a new one in the works, which is um, basically a whole load of tunes from the O'Neill's 
book of Irish tunes, which is sort of the Bible of Irish traditional tunes. Um, I'm working on arranging a whole bunch of those tunes for Clawhammer Banjo. So that'll be my, my next book. And then um, uh, I've also, somebody gave me an idea the other day, which I thought was really good, which is to do a book about how to sort of take Clawhammer in new directions. So if you're sort of played old time for a while maybe and you're you know you're feeling you want to kind of uh break out either break out of the old time genre or just break out of the kind of you know the bum ditty feel and do a few other things then maybe a book on how to explain a bit of that so um but the irish book is yes the next one that's i'm sort of halfway through it i guess at the moment so when do you think that might be released uh i would certainly hope uh certainly sometime next year hopefully early next year awesome very cool. Well, I just dropped links into the chat for anyone interested for uh, ordering from, it's on Amazon, um, and it's on, uh, there's a UK link and a US link in there, so um, yeah. you can take a look. And then the other thing you wanted to talk about was uh, you started a Patreon page as well. Yes. Everyone, it seems like there's a lot of people out there with Patreon. It's a great way to support artists that you care about yeah. or anyone um, in the creative field. What, by, by subscribing and signing up, what can people expect to find uh, in your Patreon subscription? Yeah. So again, this was in the in the offing. Even even sort of before the the lockdown thing, um, I'd someone had said to me, you know, you should really have some content on your website or something of you know videos explaining what you do and and you know maybe some some tabs and things. So so I thought you know obviously with the current situation, I thought this is prime time to do it. So there are three tiers. Um, the first tier is really for people who would like to support me doing what I'm doing, but also who maybe aren't necessarily banjo, looking to learn banjo stuff particularly, but just kind of want to watch some videos of me. So they will get uh, two uh, exclusive video performances a month and also a video where I kind of go into one of my pieces in great detail over how it came about and that sort of thing and how I wrote it. Um, and various freebies now and again as well. And then the two other tiers are aimed at the banjo players. So there's the tabs tier, where you get free two tabs a month. Uh, it's not really free because you're subscribing, but you know what I mean. Two tabs a month um, of varying difficulties. So some aimed at the beginner, intermediate end of things, others much more sort of intermediate and advanced. So two tabs a month. Um, and then the, the top tier is uh, with each of those tabs, you get an accompanying video explaining the tab in detail. So really breaking it down and showing you all the individual bits. And um, also um, two videos a month where I just go into a particular area of banjo technique in minute detail. Um, and again, these are techniques of all different levels. So the first video this month, well, this has been the first month of the page. It's only just been launched. So the first video is on the right hand basics. So just the very, very basic mechanics. The other video coming out this month is about grace notes, which are... Um, known as ornaments in Irish music. So this is where you sort of uh, add a note that doesn't have its own time value, but just makes something sound a tiny bit fancier, basically. So instead of getting this, you'll get those sorts of things. So just little sort of, it's a whole video about how to do that. There'll be a whole video about how to do the funky percussive stuff, uh, a whole video about playing along to things like really broken down into really, really sort of, you know, minute detail. And the other thing about it is you can ask me anything at any time. There's like a sort of thread within the page okay. where you can type a question to me anytime and I can 
and I can hopefully answer it. <laughs> and are you taking students on right now? I know you've got a few students out here in the US and as well as the UK. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're still able to teach. Yeah, can, still, still where can doing, people find out there. about uh, lessons? Say that again, sorry. Where, where can people find out about lessons? Uh, on my website's the easiest way. Um, so if you go to the, my website, there's a specific page about my teaching um, and you can contact me through there. And uh, I teach on Skype, which actually I was doing before lockdown, which I'm very glad I was because at least I had some money <laughs> still coming in. Um, but since lockdown started, I've had quite a lot of new students, which has been really nice. Um, but I'm always keen to have more. And um, I really enjoy teaching and it works really well, the online thing. In fact, I think some a lot of people prefer it. I think they feel a bit less pressured somehow than, than when they're right there. So I think um, that can work really, really well. It's basically a case of booking a Skype or a Zoom call um, and payments easy to do via PayPal and that sort of thing. So it's it's dead easy to sort out. And um, yeah, I teach people um, all yeah all over the world. It's amazing, really. Yeah, I teach people in, in Australia and, uh, and Canada and the US, New Zealand and uh, and obviously the UK. Um, so it seems to work. Yeah, it seems to work really well. In fact, I was teaching someone um, earlier today in California, in fact. Uh, uh, the opposite I hope they're end. watching. But, but yeah, uh, the, the, the Bay Area end. But, uh, but yeah, so yes, yeah, so always always welcome for that as well. And, and obviously with that, you do get, uh, you know, a lot more interaction. And, you know, I think some people learn different ways. I think some people really like the thing of just watching different videos and sort of getting those techniques into their into their playing, whereas other people much prefer the direct sort of, you know, uh, contact with the teacher. So whatever way, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I really enjoy both. Awesome. Awesome. David, uh, I've got a few questions on the chat line here, but uh, I want to give you an opportunity to, to ask anything else that you might have. Uh, Go, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mesa. Hi, Mesa. Mesa tunes in every week and she's awesome. Cool. So we, uh, <laughs> We like her. She's she's rare. She's from Brazil, um, but she asked a really good question because you. She says, Dan, considering your innovative technique of playing banjo, do you intend to develop any other musical styles on the banjo? Oh yeah, that is a good question. I mean, yeah. I mean, the short answer is yes, always. Basically, I think uh, I'm always keen to do that. Um, I think there's certain things I sort of do a bit of already that I'd love to do more of as well. So like, I've, I've I'm quite into Eastern European. Uh, folk tunes so they're in what's called asymmetric time signatures so whereas we're used to things in four four or six eight where it's very much even number of quavers in a bar they do things like seven eight and eleven eight and ten eight. so it's almost like the bar sort of to us western as it probably feels like it interrupts the bar almost um so i want to get into more of that because i only play a couple of things in that ilk and i'd like to do more of that i'm keen to do probably a bit more Latin American stuff. And I'm not just saying that because she's in Brazil, <laughs> um, but like, um, I'd really like to do, I'd really like to get into some more of that. I think that's, that's something I've really enjoyed. And I've had the odd jam session where I've sort of, you know, people who actually know how to play that stuff have been playing it. And I've kind of tried to, to, to noodle along, but actually I'd really love to get into a bit more of that as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the, the one that springs to mind the most. I'd really love to get into more of that that side of things. That would be really cool. David, you've spent some time in South America in the last few years and, and you, you quite often take a banjo down there. Do you do you ever get into into learning any of the kind of uh, more Latin American uh, styles? Uh, some tango things I've done and then and, and some and bossa novas and choro music too, Brazilian choro and uh, oh, nice. bossa novas. But uh, 
but I'd, I'd like to learn more as well. There, it's, you know, there's, there's a pretty rich culture, you know, down there and uh, musically. So, and it works on the banjo, you know. Is that five string you played or tenor? Uh, tenor, most of it, but uh, some five string. Okay. When, I've, when I've brought a tenor down there, I haven't brought a five string down there. Very cool. Very cool. That's awesome. I am, Dan, I've got to tell you, I'm getting a few uh, requests for some music. So it might be a good uh, good place to, to kind of sign out a little bit. We've been on for an hour and 20. It's, what is it, 9.20 over there in the evening? Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Something like that. And uh, I know it's getting a little late, but um, got some requests, a couple of requests for Whiplash Reel. One of them is my own request, so I'm not going to be shy <laughs> about that. Um, what was the other one? Somebody else put another one up just a minute ago. Uh, but I cannot find it. Oh, Tennessee Waltz. Oh, blimey. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to let you choose. You can choose you with what you yeah. want. Uh, one of the things that w- one of our uh, listeners um, asked about uh, very early on, though, we've we got we to try and get this done. He asked, get Dan to give us his best Irish accent. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it's going to crack us up. You don't have to. I'm not going to put you can on I, the can spot. I take but, a guess who that, Can I take a guess who's asked that? Yeah, go for it. Is, is it Jan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, Jan, Jan is one of my students who's okay. in Germany. Yes. He was just asking about where to buy a banjo. So I was, I was talking to him. Yeah. So the other day we were we had a lesson, <laughs> lesson and we were working on Irish music. We were working on Irish tunes. And I think both of us sort of accidentally broke into a bit of an Irish accent. as a like, And then it just sort of stuck. And then we both started quoting the comedy Father Ted, which we didn't realise we were doing. Well, I think we both knew we were doing, but weren't sure whether the other one was. <laughs> and then it just got completely out of hand. And, and my there's, girlfriend. There's so many people watching right now who don't know what Father Ted is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a comedy about three Irish priests. Um, it's, it's amazing. So I have to. Oh right. Oh, this is. I. Yeah. The trouble is, if Irish people are watching now, this could. Be oh, really I know. Wrong. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you be careful. You know, I, I used to spend an awful lot of time in Ireland when I was when I was growing up. With, uh, with parents used to go on holiday there uh, every year, and um, and so I, I heard a lot of the accent then when I was growing up. So I suppose it it, it kind of comes quite naturally because it's sort of stuck in my head uh, from back in those days. So I, I I like doing accents, so I do, and I, I guess with Irish accent, it's just so it's sort of happy sounding, you know, like it just makes you feel really happy. So I, I tend to do quite nailed it. Nailed it. Now I just want you to shout drink really loudly and that will be complete. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I can't believe I just did that. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah, Jan is laughing out loud right now. So. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, enough of that craziness. That was really fun. <laughs> that was really fun. Dan, any final thoughts, parting words for before we, uh, before we break this up? Parting words? Um, yeah. I, I, it's, yeah, it's a good question. Well, firstly, thank you so much to you guys for um, for having me, and, for, and I didn't realise we've been on so long. It's been so nice to talk to you, and um, I know it's a strange time for just about everybody. Um, and this probably sounds like a really sort of pretentious artist thing to say, but I genuinely, um, you know, believe in uh, music as an incredible communicator between us all, and also an amazing way to keep people's spirits up and as something to study, something to play, something to listen to, something to enjoy. Um, I think it's been a great kind of um, 
almost like a savior for an awful lot of people through this really, really crazy time. And as a musician myself, I've just been utterly touched by the number of people who tuned into my live streams and commented on my videos and, you know, sent me donations on the, the, when I've done the live streams, I've had like a PayPal donations page, like a lot of artists do. And people have been amazing in that. And, um, and genuinely the teaching as well, like the, my students have really helped to keep me sane during an interesting time to try and stay sane. So I guess my parting words are just kind of thanks to everybody and to kind of everybody to stay well and stay safe and enjoy music. Very good. You're absolutely right. We couldn't agree more. And uh, yeah, we. Uh, this is, Dave, what is this now? This is the seventh or eighth, I think, episode we've done. Ninth, maybe, I think. Ninth, and and uh, again, everybody, all, all the players, you know, very unique in their own way. They've got a very distinct style, uh, very, very uh, different outlook on the instrument itself. But the one kind of thing we always come back into is music helps everybody. You know, music is the key. It doesn't really matter what you play, how you play it. Um, and, and it's helping a lot of people get through this, this insane time. I, I can speak for myself on that one as well. Dave, I know you're the same way. Um, and uh, so, yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you. Greg Deering is walking past. Hi, Greg. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but but thank you so much. I, I do encourage everybody to check out the uh, the book. Check out the Patreon page. Check out what's your website? You didn't mention that. What was the uh, the site? Oh yeah, uh, danwalshbanjo.co.uk or .com either way. Um, uh, the other thing, basically, if you remember Dan Walsh Banjo, that's kind of my handle on everything. So like my Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, um, YouTube. It's Dan Walsh Banjo is always the the way to find me basically perfect, perfect. all right david ben any final thoughts for the day just thanks thanks for coming on and uh oh, thank you. Yeah, look forward to hearing hearing what you come up with in the future so oh, thank you well then before we uh before we part ways i'll tell you i think we we tipped the scale on the most the biggest views we've had on deering live so far so congrats that was awesome. Oh, thank you. Wow. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for that, you've got to play us out. So what do you got? Of course. Yeah. Um, well, uh, the one I was going to, the one I was thinking I was going to play out with um, was um, because I, all these genres we've mentioned uh, that I've enjoyed sort of dabbling in, but as I'm, when I was 14, I discovered bluegrass and it genuinely did kind of change my life. And um, I've been a massive bluegrass fan ever since. And um, I really enjoy trying to do kind of bluegrass in Clawhammer. So I'm going to finish off with um, a tune I wrote called Late Night Drive, which is, um, I like to think it's very sort of bluegrass influenced. Um, so I thought I'd just uh, play play out with this one. So um, thanks so much again, um, both of you. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you everybody for tuning in today. That was really, really fun. Enjoyed that. And uh, we'll see you next Thursday. Sounds good. Right. And this is Take it away, Dan. Thank you.